Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and we have a great episode for you today. We're taking a deep dive into the world of family offices and a whole lot of data and research into how they invest in real estate. And joining me today, I have DJ Van Curen, who is founder of the Van Curen Family Office Real Estate Institute, as well as a co-managing partner of Evergreen Property Partners. DJ, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Andy. Glad to be here. You know what? Even before we get, get into the, the research, how long have you been working in the family office world, DJ? You know, I first started working in about seven years ago. And like many people, I actually fell into the space because about 95% of the people that work for a family office fell into it. Mm -hmm. And that's because the uh, patriarch or matriarch has a major exit. And now they have all this money that they come across and they're like, okay, now it needs to be managed. I've got to figure out how the planning, I got tax situations, et cetera. And they say, who do I know? Well, I trust my accountant. I trust my advisor. I trust my neighbor. I trust my, you know, my banker. So um, those are, that's typically how somebody gets into the family office space. In my situation, I got very fortunate and worked for my first family, billion dollar family, focused on their real estate portfolio uh, about seven years ago. Okay, and so. Now you've founded the Van Curren Family Office Real Estate Institute, and I know that, that you're on the leading edge of executive education in the family office world. So the research that we're going to discuss today is produced by the Institute. But before we even get to that, could you tell us more about the Institute? Sure. So uh, after I worked for the first family, I got headhunted by the Heyman family, which is Giorgio Perfume, Giorgio of Beverly Hills came up with a retail brand strategy and um, stabilized that, did some work with a younger gen that uh, works for one of the, or owns one of the major league baseball teams. And through that period of time, I dove in to really um, try to understand families where after working for some and additional families and, and where that gap was. And mm -hmm. one of the biggest reasons why the Family Office Real Estate Institute came about is because 70% of families lose their wealth by the second gen, 90% lose their wealth by the third generation. And real estate, I wholeheartedly believe, and it's like I'm on a mission, to um, can be used in order to maintain that legacy wealth. And so the Institute came about after initially providing education, writing articles, speaking at events, et cetera. Then I was asked by one of the universities to help spearhead this. And um, it's there to provide education for families, family offices, um, industry experts, family office professionals, mm -hmm. so that they can get a holistic look um, with real estate to make sure that they're investing properly and they're really utilizing that asset class 
to maintain that legacy and even create a, an additional legacy in addition. Because real estate's the second largest area of wealth creation after the first area that they created their wealth. Got it. And so when we're talking about family offices, I, if I remember correctly from the last episode you recorded, you know, the true family office, meaning like a single family office, really necessitates around 250 million in, in investable assets. Um, but but I also know that you know there's um, you know shared family offices, multifamily offices, outsourced family offices. There's you know all kinds of different hybrid models or gray area, whatever you want to call it. So you know once once we're talking that amount of wealth, we're talking ultra high net worth. How how big is this world? I mean, how many family offices are there in the United States? You know that's a good question. Um, in the U.S. alone, there's probably up to 7,500, maybe 8,000 families on a global basis, about 15,000 as a whole, which mm -hmm. is 250 million or more and actually classified as a family office. Um, you know, there's um, so it's a quite a large, uh, a, a large number of people. But what's interesting is that the amount of wealth that's going to be created and transferred over the next 10 to 20 years is significant. We're going to be getting into the largest wealth transfer in history. It's mm. starting to happen right now. And I mean, that is, you know, probably in the, in the realm of, of 50, $60 trillion uh, that's going to be transferred. So it's a very, very uh, large market today on the real estate side, the average allocation to real estate for a family is about 24 and a half percent. Um, that equates uh, just in the U.S. alone to about you know uh, one and a half two trillion dollars. Wow! And that's going to grow over the next ten to twenty years to about fifteen trillion dollars. That's going to be invested, should be allocated into real estate at least. So it's a large market. It's an upcoming market, um, and it continues to grow. And so, what what are the growth drivers there? I mean, in terms of uh, you know, the ultra wealthy and, you know, clients who need this sort of service is it just the increased number of like liquidity events in, you know, with startups and, and software and just a, uh, increasingly global economy, or is, is there just more overall opportunity to create wealth or what's driving that? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And, and by the way, too, is that, um, you know, when we say 250 million or more, we're not, and you said this a little bit earlier, it's not even including those that are worth 50 million, 100 million, 150 million, which is really ultra high net worth. It's hard to, it's, it's surprising to say that. Sure. And, and those are additional statistics um, of what that global wealth is, which is pretty significant. And um, when you look at, a couple of years back, somebody told me that just in the Houston area alone, there was 1,500 people that were worth 100 million. So that number's pretty significant. You know, it, it, it gets up there quite a bit. Um, the the reason for the growth is a couple fold, and a lot of people probably hear in the uh, well, politicians talking about it, and then in the news about all this wealth that's been created, mm -hmm. and that's from the sale of businesses. It, it, it's also from investments that have been made. I mean, the one thing I will tell you that, uh, you know, three months into working for my first family, I was out at a meeting with another family in California and I walked out and they were talking about being the first investors into 
um, into uh, uh, you know Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and whatnot. And I literally walked out and I said, it's no wonder why the rich get richer because the reality is they have mm -hmm. access to deals that other people don't see, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, or they'll invest with families. If I was sitting on a couple hundred million dollars, personally, I wanted to invest in tech. I'd find a family that made their wealth or created their wealth in tech and say, can I invest with you? Sure, because they sure. that's what they spent the last 40 years on. So that growth is coming from a variety of sources. And, you know, investments have been good for everybody. It's just that when you add zeros, it grows that much more, right? Right. No. And you're absolutely right. Looking at the real estate market, looking at the stock market, looking at, you know, the wealth that's been built in the past 20 years in Silicon Valley uh, or shoot in Texas, you know, um, that makes sense that there would be this, you know, it's, it's not that small anymore. I mean, even if you're talking about a hundred million and up, it's, it's an increasingly larger number. And so I think this research is really interesting because we're talking about how family offices invest. And as you mentioned, they have like a 24, 25% allocation to real estate. So we're really talking about a tremendous amount of money that's being invested. And, you know, as I looked through the report and, and I did read it, you know, it kind of occurred to me, it kind of hit home. Um, family offices really do think about their investments differently. And, and some of the trends will align with, you know, trends that you'll see with very high net worth accredited investors or RAAs or whatever, but some of them are a little bit different. Um, so before we get to the headlines in the report, could I ask, you know, how do you produce this report? How do you actually survey family offices to get this data? That's a good question. So um, for, I've been fortunate to get to know a lot of families over the last seven years. And, and that's primarily from working for a family individually at a time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so how the report started, and we just finished up our fourth year, we're going to start our fifth year coming up here. So now we've got real data to, to pull off of. Um, honestly, I picked up the phone and called uh, every single you know, hundreds of, of families in order to gather this information so that I, because I knew if they were actually really a family or not, mm -hmm. we ask a lot of questions. And so by me personally calling them, they're more apt to fill that out. Cause it so this take... isn't, this isn't a survey that you could like hire a survey yeah. company to do you, you basically, if you want real family offices to give you that information, you need that personal relationship. And I mean, honestly, that's a theme in the, the family office world is personal it relationship is. is everything. Um, that's right. And they, and, and they don't want, the majority of families want to be silent. Mm -hmm. They they don't want to have, you know, there's not a sign on the door. Everybody wants to access or get to know these wealthy families, but that doesn't mean that they're uh, publicly out there. So when I've met them through another family or at a private event or something like that, you know, I get to know these people. And, and um, so I make sure that I ask people that I know are actually family offices. And that name's really been thrown around over the last number of years where people say, oh, I'm a family office. And, and you know, that's another conversation per se. But um, so we make sure, yeah, that this, these are legitimate families that are answering these uh, questions. Got it. So this is essentially proprietary data yes. you've collected yourself. We can't get anywhere else. And just so our listeners and viewers know, I'm going to link to this in our show notes. 
So there's a section on the Four Institute website where you can go and access these reports. And I actually have it pulled up here on my computer monitor. So if you see me looking around my screen, it's because I, I want to get the data correct. Um, and, and right on the second page of the report, there are some, some trends from 2021. And I understand that you're, you're releasing the 2022 report soon, but 2021 compared to 2020, I mean, there are some really big trends and big changes here. If we think about, you know, what, what, all that occurred over, over those, you know, over that timeline. And so that first trend, uh, I thought this one was very interesting. Family offices have a preference for investing into secondary markets. So 48.61% are investing in secondary markets. DJ, why do families like these secondary markets so much? Well, there's there's one thing that I want to bring up first, and then I'm going to answer that question. Mm-hmm. I've had the ability, and then in the, in the uh, 90s, I was an advisor. So working with a lot of retail investors, uh, high net worth um, investors, which uh, like you said, there might be a lot of people watching or, or whatever the case is. And then you have um, family offices, and then you also have institutional. So I've done work in the past with Goldman Sachs and, and um, Carlisle Group and Blackstone and stuff like that, and which are institutional investors. And Family offices are more like the retail everyday common investor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons because one, what you're about to go over in the data and any information that anybody that watches a show like this, where I'm talking about how family offices are investing, they can do the exact same thing. It's just at a smaller scale, right? So the fundamentals all remain the same, mm-hmm. but instead of being invested in a $40 million deal, maybe you're invested into a $3 million deal. Sure. That's okay, right? Well, and DJ, sorry, we, you said that you know family offices are different from institutions. I totally agree yes. with that, but I, I, I guess there's at least two aspects to that. Maybe there's more than two, but one aspect is just psychologically, you know, mm-hmm. that the institutions, you know, a lot of times they'll have legal mandates or restrictions and handcuffs on how they can invest. Where a family office, it's it's basically down to the principal, you know, but but also even just the tax considerations for a family office are going to be very similar to any other individual because there's all sorts of tax advantaged investing, um, you know, investment products that are not really attractive to institutions. They're really more attractive to individual investors. So I'm just kind of curious when you say family offices are are more similar to that individual investor, did you mean more psychologically or more in terms of like their tax tax advantage well, that's, philosophy? That's a good question. So on the institutional side, right, they have a box. This is what we invest into. This is our mandate. This is our returns that we need to go for, right? Sure. And this is our time frame. If they have a fund, then they only have a specific amount of time that they can invest. If it ends at the end of six years, guess what? doesn't matter where we are in the cycle. They have to dispose of those assets. Sure. But more importantly, it's not their money. They're hired, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people that have spent their time in NBAs, you get a lot of people in their early 30s, mid 30s. But at the end of the day, it's not their money. They're making decisions based upon the criteria and the box, and they have to get money out. So I actually even have a question if there's really a proper fiduciary component, because if they're sitting on a billion dollars, they've got to invest. Whereas a family, right, 
it's they don't have to invest. And there's three rules that you get when you work for a family. Don't lose money, don't lose money, and don't lose money, right? <laughs> and sure. so they don't have to be in just for six years. They can let that go forever, yeah. right? They don't have to pull the trigger and write a check. If they want to hold off, they can hold off, right? But this is personal. This is a personal decision and an investment decision because they want to make sure that that money's there for future generations, just like a retail investor. They are making a decision to say, I only have X amount of money mm. that I and I need to make good decisions. And if I lose this money, I may never get it back. It's the same thing for these for family offices, but maybe even more so because their checks are bigger mm-hmm. and they're not going to have another exit of hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in their lifetime. That's a good point, DJ, because, you know, if you're a, a surgeon and, you know, you're earning 750000 a year, essentially, if you lose your investments in any given year, it doesn't really matter. You have that earning power. Whereas if you started a software company or a widget company and you have that one-time liquidity event, it really is, I think, the psychology of that is a little bit different because... Most people, uh, you know, if you're not Steve Jobs, you know, even most very successful entrepreneurs, you're going to look back and there's going to be like one really big liquidity event, right? That's right. And then when you get that money, you're like, okay, I got to make good decisions, right? It's not like I know I've got fund two and fund three coming behind because we're just going to go to all these (laughs) endowments or foundations, right, to invest. Yeah. But what's also different is because institutions have to put out a lot of money, they'll go into the primary markets, they'll go into the coastal cities, the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, right? The Miami's of the world. Mm. And they will occasionally look in the secondary markets. The problem is a lot of them cannot go be below a $20 million check. Now, you do have big families like the Perot family or Michael Dells or Bloomberg's, right, where they also have to get money out because they're, you know, they're they're so wealthy themselves. But the sweet spot, which is underneath the institutional radar and above what we call a country club money, are deals that are anywhere between 10 to 40 million dollars in size. Mm-hmm. Those checks are between five to twelve million dollar equity checks. If you wrote it yourself, or if it got syndicated out, maybe they invest a hundred or five hundred thousand or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. And these are markets that are up and coming. Your Denver's, your Austin's, right? Your Nashville's. Um, are those other, even secondary markets those, anymore? I feel like well, they, they technically are, okay. but they're moving into being, you know, primary markets. But that's where your greatest increases are. You're sure. not com- you're not competing with the institutional dollar, right. right? And so they're very comfortable. And don't forget, a lot of these families were entrepreneurs, okay. so they're able to sort of take that additional step. And that's where the real money is: are these secondary markets, the smaller property types. And, um, you know, you're going to get more bang for your buck. You're going to get higher returns. And uh, you have so many fundamentals that are happening, growth um, due to inc- or due to um, uh, people migrating to those areas. Mm-hmm. Jobs are there, quality of life. And so families are very uh, open to these secondary markets. So there's basically a premium there because these large institutional investors need to deploy so much capital at at one time that they're essentially forced to invest in these primary markets in your LA yeah, and, and, and so and, on. 
and and so that's why the only way that like we we were working on um you know through our consortium of families we were looking at industrial small bay for example some of those properties are two million dollars some are 10 15 you might hit 20 occasionally mm-hmm. that's total price that's with debt well there wow. is no institutions that's going to come in however if you accumulate a portfolio of 100 million dollars 150 million dollars 200 million now the institutions are like well i can buy that 100 million dollar portfolio and write a check for 40 or 50 million dollars that's so, so that's- interesting. Yeah, we had I had Spartan Investor Group on the um, show a couple episodes back, and I mean they're a fund, but it's essentially that same strategy: going into yep. secondary markets, acquire assets, roll them up, and then it's essentially multiple arbitrage because once it hits a certain scale, then you have a different buyer who essentially will pay that higher multiple. Um, and more buyers too, right? You have more buyers because now the institutional checkbooks can come out. They're looking to deploy capital. That's so strange to me, DJ, that there's more buyers at, you know, three hundred million than there are at thirty million. You know, it's it, I guess it's strange but true. Um, it, it's very true, and I'll tell you one thing too that was really interesting. So I'm in the offices of American Realty Advisors. This is this was before I, I started working with families, right? And there was a big industrial deal. And they're like, well, we want off market. Well, for the size of deals that institutions will do because they have to write big checks, mm-hmm. these are 150, 200, $250 million transactions. There is no off market deal, right. right? And so what <laughs> happened, which really was surprising to me is that, so a broker got a deal for $200 million, right? So okay. she secured it. She did an email blast to all the institutions, all the insurance company, all the big players. She did not pick it up. She just blasted it out. And there's all these people, all these com- institutions and stuff that were interested because it was a big deal. So they could put money out. And that just really baffled me because usually when you're, you know, people that raise money, they're on the phones or talking to people, you know, um, a lot, a lot of the time but there's such a demand at that level. And that's why these uh, roll-ups are important, right? That's fascinating. That is fascinating. Okay. Let's move on to the second trend from the research. So holding period. So the typical hold time for families, according to this research is between five to 19 years and 20% of participants preferred five to seven years hold time with an equal percentage of about 20% wanting to hold seven to 10 years. I mean, that checks out to me. That's that's a typical life cycle of like a private placement offering. DJ, is there is there any trend to holding times getting longer? Because I feel like I hear the message more of like, when you buy a good asset, why sell it? Then you're in the problem of now I need to deploy cash, um, you know, to buy another asset. So I hear that. But then when I look at the market, I see people cashing in. (laughs) So maybe those two things counteract each other. All right. So so this really depends on what kind of real estate investor you are with the family office. There's five different types of real estate investors in the family office space. The first kind is the family that created their wealth in real estate. This might be a Silverstein, right? Mm -hmm. Could be a Trump. It could be that's where they created their wealth was real estate. So that's the first one. And typically, um, 
they're going to buy their own properties because they have all the infrastructure in place for the property managers and everything else, right? Sure. The second uh, type of uh, family office real estate investor is a Michael Dell, right? A Ross Perot, a Bloomberg. Uh, um, these are families that are worth billions of dollars and they'll actually hire those institutional people. Mm similar to these private equity firms, right? To come and run that platform. And once again, now these are, they're not going to be necessary. They might buy some themselves, but they're also going to be investing in other deals, but it's ran on an institutional perspective. The third type of family office real estate investor is like uh, the one family that I worked for out of LA where they'll build their own platform. So what that means is they'll hire their internal uh, property manager or asset manager to right. oversee the properties, and they own them all themselves. They're I mean that their that own has portfolio. to be that has to be a great model for returns. I mean, if you can figure out how to vertically integrate, it seems like there's a lot of juice to squeeze there. Well, there is a lot of juice, but you know those families are going to be more. We're going to just buy and hold. I don't have uh, to sell. I can hold them on forever, right? And they might the give floor, they might give the second and third generation a job to do as well, right? I mean, they could, they could, right? Okay. Um, so what's our what's and, our fourth and fifth type? Sorry, I interrupted. Okay, so, that. So, <laughs> no, that's okay. So the fourth is the family office that says I'm going to invest with a sponsor, mm -hmm. right, or an operator, and on average, which you can see in the report, it's consistent. They might have four to six different sponsors that they consistently invest with. Now, 70% of families want to invest directly into real estate. And that just doesn't mean owning the property themselves because they have the day-to-day -day headache, but really investing with, with a partner that's mm -hmm. going to be handling the day-to-day -day and everything else. Now, mm -hmm. those types of investments, although they are direct, they're usually a period of time, right? They usually end after five years or seven years. They couldn't hold it forever because they're part of a syndicate, Right. So they're a limited partner in that investment. So that's the fourth kind. The fifth kind is the family that just doesn't have an infrastructure in place. They don't have the ability to do all the research and everything else. So they'll invest in the funds and they'll invest in everything from private funds to REITs, you know, as a whole. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just doing the math, if setting up the infrastructure, let's say costs a million a year, then, then even at the hundred million in assets level, I mean that's a that's a one percent drag, right? That's going to be a lot more efficient at the two hundred and fifty million or five hundred million level. It's just it's going to be a lot. The economics of that will be a lot better. Um, okay, so so those holding periods, you know, to some extent, it sounds a little bit like in you know the institutions or whatever is is that just due to the nature of the beast? Some of these family offices, the way they invest, whether into funds. Or with a partner, they essentially need to life cycle out. They need to exit, you know, those investments at year five or year unless seven. They, or year unless 10. they hold it, unless they hold it themselves, mm -hmm. and they're like, "We're just going to hold this for future gens," or they're with another family that's like, "We just want to hold. We just want cash flow." And sure. it it really it just varies, just like different retail clients when you're advisor have different investment objectives. Right. Mm -hmm. Based upon their risk tolerance, based upon, you know, when they retire or the lifestyle they want afterward is going to determine the kind of investments they go into. It's the same thing with families. Right. If they've got they're like, we just want to hold. That's it. Or no, let's try to get some 
additional uh, higher returns. And to do that, it's by increase in value and sell. Sure. Once it's stabilized. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about sectors next. So this was the third headline in, in the research. And I'm really only on page two. Although when I dig in, I did dig into these sections for more data. Um, but, but I love in the research report, uh, you know, you don't hide the lead, you know, you, you kind of come right out with it. Um, talking about sectors here, most popular sector for family office was multifamily. Uh, I, I don't think anyone watching or listening is surprised by that. And and then also that uh, in 2020, office was the second most popular sector. In 2021, industrial was the second most popular sector. Again, I don't I don't think that's surprising. But but DJ, do you see any you know differences overall in the sectors that families are interested in versus the sectors that institutions are interested in or or maybe individual investors. Yeah, so uh, for this report that's coming out as well, once again, the the main one was multifamily, and okay. then it was followed by industrial, right? Okay. Um, there was just some information that came out through one of the institutional real estate news wires where um, uh, institutions are really going after multifamily and industrial. Mm-hmm. So in this situation, it's the same. Yep. Um, you know, I, I think it goes back to there's much more of a, um, a thought, uh, a planning, right? I say the box, the planning box that institutions have than families. I mean, it's amazing because a lot of families don't have a, a thesis or investment parameters or allocations or anything like that, which which amazes me. Because it's one of the most important things, right, that needs to be done about how we're going to do that. Now, some of that has to do purely from education, which is, once again, why the Institute came about and why it's so important. Because, Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because if you spend 40 years in chemicals or tires or technology and all of a sudden you have all this money, you don't understand hedge funds and real estate and venture capital, right? And mm-hmm. private equity. And in fact, there's people that spend their whole life in in not only venture capital, but healthcare venture capital and then certain right. sizes, right? So some of that is just based upon, we don't really know how to do the planning because we don't really understand these allocations, but what is it that I'm comfortable with so there's a lot of, once again, goes to that personal emotion. Well, multifamily, you have a diverse base of people paying rents. I get it. I understand. People have to have a place to live, right? And so sure. that's one of the driving factors. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not going into retail locations that much. So I'm not very keen on that office. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a big trend that's happening with, um, yeah, you know, with, with uh, because of COVID. People aren't going back into the office. So it's right. it's more of a, um, they look at it more like, I'm trying to think, he was an old uh, real estate fund manager who had the number one fidelity fund, I think it was. And he made his decisions based upon what you're seeing out there, right? Going to a mall. Where are people was going that, to? Was where that are they Peter shopping? Lynch or somebody? Yes, was one of the- Peter Lynch. Okay. Yes, Peter Lynch. So Peter Lynch's was more like, you know, his wife came back one time yeah. and she, she had all these bags. He's like, where were you? She's like, I was at the Gap. Yeah. So he goes and checks out the Gap yeah. and he invests in the Gap, right? Sure. Rather than let's have a, a, a 
let's go over a portfolio allocation and, and let's make sure that we've got, you know, certain betas and all this other stuff. So that's where really a difference comes. They're more like um, emotionally, let's, this is what I'm seeing. This is what yeah, I'm no, I, I, I get it. I mean, if you look through my portfolio, see a lot of investments in chocolate bars and red wine. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, it's one of those things. It's like some of the most sophisticated and smartest investors, when you look at what they're investing in, it's like, well, duh. It's common sense, fundamental macro trends. And it's like when you look at, when you look at these trends over a long enough period of time, um, of course you want to align your money, you know, in alignment with big macro trends and with the fundamentals rather than trying to quote unquote outsmart any local market. It's, it's what, you know, and, and think about it. Anybody can where they live, right. They know of an area that's booming could be a small little area actually, where there's a lot of people moving to or houses are being renovated or something. Right. Sure. Well, that may never come up on my radar, your radar, definitely not an institutional radar, but because you have, because you see what's happening, what's going on, you have an understanding about it. Mm-hmm. You're like, that's a good deal. That's a good place to invest because it's something that it's intrinsic, you know, and you don't necessarily need that supporting data. Of course, the more data you have, the better off, right? Data can mitigate a lot of risk, but it's the same kind of thing, you know, sure. and, and that's, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge component. And that's what's great about real estate is that it's actually tangible, right? Yeah. And that's why it's also, I think it's important that, like I said, if I had 200 million, I'd find a family that created their wealth in an area. Same thing when you're investing with others mm-hmm. in real estate. If somebody's been out there doing it a long time, they've had success at it, right? Probably a good person to invest with. Absolutely. Okay. One other big headline I want to hit on, and and I'm going to read this verbatim because I, I want to get it right. So, although most family offices felt that tax efficiency was either important, and that was 31.5%, or very important, and that was 34.7%, only about 32% believe that their tax efficiency is, quote, very good. And about 48% felt their tax efficiency was merely, quote, good. And then I, I added them up. We have a total of 15% who felt their tax efficiency was somewhat between either fair or poor or very poor. So it's like these families or the family offices, rather, they're aware that tax efficiency is important. Yet at the same time, they're acknowledging that you know, at least a lot of them are acknowledging that they're not really addressing it or executing well in that area. And I, I got to say, I guess I give those families, uh, I give them an A for honesty, right? At least acknowledging that, that we need to do better here. Well, it, it goes back to one education and understanding, right? Which, mm-hmm. which is what the Family Office Real Estate Institute is all about. When I started working with my first family, I sat across the table three months in from an industry professional that's been doing it for a long time. And so I'm trying to learn as much as I can. So I asked her, I said, so what have you been doing? She goes, well, we had 60 families in Israel. We did an event. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, what were you working on? Or what did you guys talk about? And she looked at me and she said, "Um, you know, hedge funds 101. 
And I just shook my head. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, she doesn't know what she's talking about. These people are wealthy. These people are, mm. are smart, right? They're successful. Right. What, what is she talking about? Well, like I said before, they've, they've spent their whole life in one specific area in where they created their wealth, but they don't know all these other things. And taxes are one of those as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, to give you a couple examples, and it's once again this year, about 80% of families don't use a 1031 exchange, mm -hmm. which is baffling to me why that's because you can continue to defer taxes. It's one of the greatest way to- It to seems like if there was if there was ever a program that was like made for a family office, it would seem to be a 1031 exchange. Okay. That's all about preserving generational wealth, right? Well, the other the other issue is this opportunity zone, right? Yeah. And when you look at how many, everybody thought these wealthy wealthy families were going to be investing in these opportunity zone. The reality is, is initially it was like eighteen percent, and then it went up to about twenty six percent, twenty eight. And the majority of the people that are taking advantage of the opportunity zones are the high net worth. Hmm. Well, the reason for this is one, they didn't understand what the rule guidelines were coming out because they took like a year to come out with, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you and Jimmy can talk more about this better than me, but they took a long time to get the, the rulings out, right? Right. And then when the rulings came out, they still, the majority of families still don't understand them. They don't understand really what that involves mm -hmm. and how that can play a role and what to look for and all this other stuff and all they see are returns and they don't really understand how the program lasts. I also did an email a couple of years ago about cost segregation for real estate. And that was the most time I ever had. My phone rang off the hook from families I knew to say, what is this? What wow. I can't, what, I don't understand this. Who can I talk to and all this other stuff. And so I think there's an assumption that families really understand the tax components and a lot of professionals don't either. Well, I was going to ask DJ, is this more an issue of the issue not being top of mind for you know the principal, for the matriarch or patriarch, or is it more a, a gap with the professionals who are working in the offices? Okay. So I think it's a couple fold. If you remember for, uh, when I said at the beginning that 95% fall into the space, mm -hmm. right? And sure. that's because the, the, the patriarch, matriarch, trust that person. Well, let's say it's your banker that comes in or your accountant. Mm -hmm. They don't understand all the different types of investments either. They don't understand, they don't understand, you know, private equity and what to look for and all this other stuff, just like the patriarch or matriarch. So now you've just ex exasperated the problem. Sure. And do they really know who they're looking for professional-wise in order to help them? That really has that understanding, or do they really understand, you know, what are the issues that you're really having to deal with? You know, a great show is succession. And it's it just shows you how a, dis a family is, can be so dysfunctional, you know? And um, it's, it is it is advisors. There is advisors that don't understand 1031 exchanges. They don't understand the implementation. They're just carrying out whatever they're doing on a daily basis. And so I think it's a combination of not talking to the right professionals and um, that have that expertise. And then internally, whether that's with your internal professional or the family, having an idea of really what to ask themselves. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, DJ. And you know, it, it occurs to me that you, a matriarch or patriarch, you know, a principal at a family office, 
you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're wrong to place such an emphasis on trust and long-term relationship with an advisor that, that, that they work with. I mean, it, I think that makes sense on a lot of different levels. Um, but at the same time, you might want to, you know, keep an advisor, keep your long-term advisor in place, but you know, that advisor may, may need to educate themselves or, or may, may need to pursue, you know, different types of education, um, or networking with other folks who can assist them. Right. Because it, because a professional in the family office world, you're, you're kind of a, a generalist by nature, right? Like you can't really, you're not likely to be able to be a true expert in any one area. It's more about managing lots of different things that work together, I would think. Yeah. Well, you know, and this is where, um, you know, the number you had mentioned 250 to have somebody, it's really about 750 to a billion until you have your own internal CIO. Okay. Right. And, and which is a lot, right? So that's where um, an outsourced CIO where they work with multiple families can be extremely beneficial, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to have the 250 or whatever, or a multifamily office. Now, a real multifamily office, they have what they, and I, I was talking about it this morning with somebody, they have what I call the hard side and the soft side of their business. Mm -hmm. The hard side is the tangible side. That's the investments. That's where to invest, how to construct a portfolio, the different types of alternative investments, right? Mm -hmm. And and how to deal with all that. The soft side is, okay, do we have to do a bill pay because they have so much? Are we dealing with jets? Are we dealing with um, make sure that the planning's in state, the estate, the taxes, right? All so of those is this, issues. you know, pay, paying the housekeeper at four different houses around the world? I it, mean, that type of stuff? Be, it could be if they're worth that much money. Sure. But a lot of times, if you know, that's why if you can use a multifamily office and you're worth 20 million or 50 million, you you can still have access to this through a real multifamily office because there's a lot of air issues you have to deal with. Sometimes you have to deal with, I'll ask, you know, is there a psychiatrist on board? Because everybody has family issues, but mm -hmm. you it, it gets exacerbated exacerbated when you have all this money, right? Sure. Now, people that say they're a family office, and this is really important, that don't deal with that soft side, all those issues that I said, the tax components and the planning and future generations dealing with all that other stuff, and they only deal with the investment side, they're probably just an RIA mm -hmm. saying they're a multifamily office. So, you know, and then there's different ways that, um, you know, you, you can have these services for multifamily offices and you can pay for it. And so I, I think that if you can utilize that as your wealth is growing and these real multifamily offices, because there are some now that are focusing between 10 and 100 million, right? Mm -hmm. Or 50 wow. million and 150 million. Um, and they can do that because they have 10 clients, they have 10 families, 12 families. And so now they're helping multiple families. They know they have that experience. And then that smaller family can still get the same type of support as if they had their own. Understood. Yeah. And that's really interesting. You know, that hard side and that soft side, I'm sure it depends family to family, sort of which, which side requires, uh, you know, more time to manage or, you know, more time to service. Well, it, 
the more the more money that you have, you you really need both. Mm-hmm. You really do. I mean, look at Ann Hedge. I mean, she didn't even have a will. And I'm sure she had a few dollars. I mean, it, and there's a number of stories about that, you know? Sure, absolutely. And, and, and that's just a basic thing. But as you get more money, and if you truly want to pass and not be one of those families that lose 70% by the second gen and 90% by the third gen, Mm-hmm. And truly have that go on for future generations. You do need to make sure that you've got that soft side taken care of. It's just, it's just a matter of to what extent. Absolutely, and you know that's what one thing I appreciate about the Four Institute is you know the fact that the programming addresses both that soft side and the mm-hmm. hard side, the investment side, you know, and the people side. And I understand that you have an upcoming fall program coming up at the Four Institute. So could you tell us more about that program? Yeah. So all of our, um, we, we have virtual where you can, you can uh, go to the program virtually. You can also go on campus, um, which is uh, held at the University of Denver. And, you know, we bring in the very best professionals uh, and industry experts. So we have professors from Harvard and Wharton and University of Chicago and University of Denver. We have some of the top family office people. And like you said, we will you know, focus on real estate, but we'll also talk about things like governance mm-hmm. or how to structure various aspects of what I said, the soft side, right? So there are those aspects. And then there's other people that you can get a chance to speak with um, other families, other people that have been through the same situation. And that's probably one of the best things about the Institute is the collaboration, right? Mm-hmm. And talking to other people. I mean, we, we it's not uncommon that we won't have a, a couple billion dollar families or a billion dollar family in there. They're super, super, super nice. But what you can learn from them is pretty, pretty incredible, regardless of how big you are, right? And our education is just like any other that you get at Harvard at Wharton, obviously, with the professors that we have and the quality. And that's coming up October 26th, 27th, and 28th. Um, you can get more information at fore.institute, not .com, but for.institute. And, um, you know, you can also gather additional information where we've got the quarterly magazine, Family Office Real Estate Magazine up there, the Mueller Market Monitor, which tells us where we are in the real estate cycle based on property type and location that comes out quarterly. We've got the studies that you, you're you bringing up and talking about. Um, we've also got um, podcasts, we have videos, we have online individual courses. Um, so we've got a lot of great resources there as well. And um like I said, it's relevant for anybody. It's just whether you add a couple zeros or not. Absolutely. And DJ, I love that, you know, that program is primarily on campus. I know you have the online option as well, but, you know, you get together in person with people, like-minded people, you know, in community, in person, it's just easier to share things, you know, share things privately. And, uh, you know, talking with you before, you know, you've mentioned that the family office community is very, you know, collaborative not necessarily competitive. Um, So I think this is a really cool program for anyone who's working in a family office, who's managing a family office. Um, So I'm going to make sure to link to the fall 2022 program at the four Institute in our show notes here. And I know limited space is available. I think this episode DJ is going to publish this week uh, around September 14th or so. 
So there still should be at least uh, hopefully a couple weeks left where um, listeners could register or apply to that program. Um, but in general, where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about the Institute as well as your investment uh, platform, Evergreen Property Partners? Yeah. So there's three different areas. One is, as I mentioned, the uh, four dot institute, F-O-R-E for family office real estate dot institute, not dot com. Mm-hmm. That's for the institute where they can learn more. And they've got up to the middle of next month in, in order to apply. Uh, okay. And we do take applications um, for that, for the institute. Um, for the uh, family office real estate consortium, which is an investing together with families, um, they can go to evergreenpropertypartners.com. And uh, if they want to learn more, a little bit about me and my background, they can go to djvancaren.com. Yeah, DJ, you are a very busy guy. I understand you're speaking at the upcoming family office conference in Miami. Is that right? Yeah, I'm keynoting the Opal Conference, family office Opal Conference. And we're going to be going over a lot of the uh, data from the current report and the past reports, because like you said, we can start seeing trends. And, um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, really get the message across that real estate in my mind, and this is personal, but I, I really believe it's the best way to maintain a legacy and create additional wealth. Absolutely. And and Jimmy and I are, we just booked our hotels there. So we'll be there as well, DJ. AltsDB is an official media partner at that event. So any viewers or listeners who want to you know, come introduce yourselves to myself or to DJ, please don't be a stranger. We'd love to talk to you at the upcoming IMN Family Office Conference. Uh, And as a reminder for our listeners, if you want links to all the things that we mentioned in today's show, you can always access our show notes at altsdb.com podcast uh, slash podcast. That is, I'm pretty good about linking to everything that we discuss. And please don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform so that you will receive our new episodes as we release them. DJ, thanks again for coming on the show today. Yeah, and I just want to say one last thing in closing. Um, for anybody sure. that's listening to this for the first time or maybe the second time, um, you really need to utilize the resources, education, and information that AltsDB has an opportunity, DB. I mean, you guys put on some fantastic content, and it would really um, behoove people listening, if they haven't, to really dig in to what you guys are doing because you've got some great stuff. I appreciate that, DJ. Thanks for the kind words. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Music.